With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. Well, that's not quite right. This week, I'm actually going to be the guest. It's a special occasion, and there are two reasons for it. First, this is my goodbye to all of you. This is my last episode on Working. This show has been on the internet since 2014, when David Plotz started it. I've been semi-regularly hosting now since June of 2018. I and the other hosts who've sat behind the mic for it have talked to all sorts of people about what they do for a living, how they do it, what their daily routines are like, why they love it, why they might not love it. And the powers that be at Slate finally decided it was time to take the show in a slightly different creative direction. I think it's actually really exciting, but it also means there are going to be a bunch of different new hosts. This is my last hurrah. Second, it's been an absolutely crazy couple of weeks to be a journalist covering the coronavirus crisis. And I thought it would be really interesting to give you a little behind-the-scenes perspective on what that has been like. So, Slate's June Thomas, who you probably know from all sorts of podcasts here, including this one, where she hosted the Second Acts miniseries, very graciously decided to sit down and talk with me about what life has been like on the economics beat recently. At the end of this episode, we then talk about the new direction that working is heading in. I hope you enjoy it, and I know it has been an absolute pleasure for me getting to do this show for you. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Jordan Weissman, and I am the senior economics writer at Slate.com. You also host a podcast, don't you? Or you have been doing so for a while. I have frequently been the host of Working, the show about what people do all day. That's right. And uh, we'll have some news at the end of the show about how Working is going to change as of next week. But I really wanted to talk to Jordan today because... In this weird world that we're living in right now, we were looking around for people who have jobs that have just gone a bit bonkers in the last couple of weeks. I know, Jordan, you reached out to people who deal with unemployment. Unemployment insurance, the people who process it. We tried to reach out to some health professionals. It turns out it's difficult to get people to pull themselves away from critical work during a national pandemic to come to a podcast episode. However, there's one person who has also been unusually busy these last couple of weeks who was available, and that's Jordan Weissman. Indeed. (laughs) I'm here in my bunker. (laughs) So, I mean, obviously, you are a very prolific journalist normally, in normal times, if we can remember those. But how has it been writing about economics and business at a time when a big international pandemic has really transformed the economy. How has your work life been different in the last couple of weeks? It's a little bit crazy making and a little bit surreal. One of the things about being an economics writer, especially someone who is sort of a pundit, I'm not going out to, you know, 
old factories that are being shuttered or really getting out into the world much. I'm sort of at my computer all the time looking at numbers and talking to economists and experts is that it can feel a little bit abstract. Mm. And so that's almost been exacerbated because everyone is cut off from the world. We're all doing this social distancing thing. And I specifically am working from kind of my second bedroom in my apartment, which is in New York City. If I still lived there, I don't think this would be legally considered a bedroom because <laughs> there are no there are no windows. Uh-huh. I literally cannot see the outside world. I am sort of in this dark room where I haven't fully decorated it. There's just this one weird poster on the wall of a kind of very furry cat. I don't even know why I put it up, but it's almost like if you saw a cat in a David Lynch movie, this is that cat. Like it's this creepy animal. It's kind of staring at me the whole time while I'm just typing about the collapsing economy (laughs) and Congress's attempts to save it and cranking out one story after another. And there's been this constant sense of escalating terror and confusion as all this has been happening. And I should say, I'm not just writing about what's happening in terms of jobs or, you know, the shutdown of businesses, that's part of it. But I've also been covering Congress's attempts to pass a stimulus bill Mm. and what that's going to look like and kind of the bailout. That too has just been incredibly hectic and kind of difficult to keep pace with and get your mind wrapped around what's happening. Yeah, well, I am very aware. It's interesting that you talked about the different way that you work. I keep saying in normal times and before times. We used to call the time before Donald Trump was elected, the before times. Right. And now that's like the before, before times. Exactly. (laughs) We've we've entered yet another epoch, but anyway. Exactly. Especially because we've been talking about the loss of norms, and now we're talking about the loss of normal. So really everything is up for grabs. But you talked about how your job is usually a different kind of reporting, but it is reporting. And I, I feel very strongly that what you do, as you say, you might not be pounding pavements or buttonholing people outside their homes. You are a reporter, I think, as well as an analyst. How do you normally find stories? What's your normal way of reporting? You know, this is, this is going to sound um, really dispiriting to some people. <laughs> Just what we need right now. A lot of it is sort of being tuned into the conversation on Twitter. Whoa. And I'm going to explain why. I cover two kinds of worlds, really. I cover economics and I cover politics. And obviously, everyone knows that, you know, political reporters, politicians themselves, operatives are all obsessed with Twitter. And a lot of the conversation is happening there. And when news breaks, you're going to see it on Twitter. And a lot of interesting kind of analysis and discussion happens there. What I think that a lot of readers don't necessarily appreciate, unless they're deep into business and economics coverage, is that most of the cutting edge conversation in the economics field also happens on Twitter. And I don't mean just kind of shooting the shit. I mean, most of the really important conversations, the stuff that later informs real academic debates Mm. and policy judgments and questions happens on Twitter. For many years, it happened on blogs. Yeah. Old school, you know, blogs with comment sections where people would go back and forth and you'd have these long extended discussions with links that you could kind of go down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. That got replaced for the most part by Twitter because the economics field, for whatever reason, is pretty good about embracing new communications tech. 
one of the people who's famously complained about this is Paul Krugman. <laughs> um, he's like, he, he was in a back and forth at one point. I sort of chimed into this conversation too. It was a topic that I've written on. And he was like, I really miss the days when you could actually just blog this stuff rather than talk to people on Twitter because it's so hard to trace the conversation. So I actually need to be tuned in there. Mm -hmm. There are also other places, obviously. Every week, new economics working papers come out from this one organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research. Those are kind of like draft studies. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing the new stuff that the field is working on, and they're not peer-reviewed or anything, but you know how to read them and see if it's interesting and talk to people about the new findings. So it's a combination of being attuned to what people are talking about, what's interesting, and what the big news stories are, and just thinking about questions that you have about them and questions you'd like to answer. For this bailout bill, I've been particularly interested in what's going to happen to small businesses because I, you know, am obsessed with restaurants and food yes. sets. <laughs> and so I'm like, how are we going to save the restaurants? And I wrote a story this week focusing really on that, where it was like, this bill's not going to save as many restaurants as I would like it to. We need to put more money into it. It's kind of just having this ambient awareness of what's happening and being a little bit too online and then <laughs> thinking of the right questions you need to ask and people might be interested in having answered. So those questions, that feels like that's the very key of it. Obviously, to be a reporter, to be a writer, to be a journalist at a place like Slate, you have to be a good writer. You have to be able to explain things clearly, but you also have to know which questions need asking, what's worth writing about. I don't know if it's possible for you to step away from yourself enough to figure this out, but it seems to me that you have to be both an expert and an everyman or a layman or know what people need to know. Do you have any kind of strategies for doing that? I mean, you talked about you just really like restaurants, like that immediately came to you? Like, how do you do that? It's a little tricky for journalists who write about the economy right now, because a lot of us do straddle that space between actually being an expert and just being a, a layperson who's kind of interpreting what the experts have to say. Mm. And a lot of us have, you know, it's extremely tricky in economics, because the journalists who write about it and understand it really well don't have an academic background mm. in it. Right. Like I don't. I studied journalism in college. Mm. You know, I went to Northwestern. I went to Medill. Yeah. I came up interning at Metro newspapers. Um, I thought I wanted to write like, you know, human interest stories. Somehow my career took me in a very different direction. That's really common. Not all of them, but some of the guys at the New York Times kind of came up that route. You know, I have Matt Iglesias, mm. uh, Vox. He studied philosophy. Um, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, the, you know, the truth is that, you know, most of us can't do the math, mm. right? Like some people can do some pretty good statistical analysis, like Ben Castleman at the Times, for instance, is, is actually really good at working with statistical programs and digging through econ data using techniques I wish I had. But you do have to, you know, over time, learn a lot about it. And you have your opinions and you have your thoughts about how the economy works and you, you try to analyze it. And then you also have to know when to step back and say, no, I really need to ask the people who know a little better than yeah. I do. I've gone a little far afield from your question because I'm talking about this weird position as an econ pundit who is not an econ PhD and <laughs> when I need to, you know, have some brass and just say what I think and when I need to show some humility. That is a struggle, right? Like, do I really know what I'm talking about here and having to 
be a, a good judge of that. That's part of actually why having access to Twitter and kind of yeah. being able to crowdsource questions to a ton of experts and DM people you know or just email professors who you've gotten to know over time is really helpful. Just ask these questions to kind of check yourself and check their opinions. Just to interrupt you a little bit, it seems yeah. that, you know, you talked earlier about how Twitter is really genuinely key to your beat and to mm. your staying informed and how that is kind of the next stage from blogs. It seems to me that the essential part of that may be that feedback loop. Oh, yeah. It's a little bit like an old chat room, right? Yeah, like yeah, an yeah. old early web chat room, except it's public. It's a little bit performative. Yeah. Everyone can see the conversation. It's not walled off. But being able to jump into the faculty lounge <laughs> is helpful and sometimes chime in as like one of the undergrads <laughs> at that level. But <laughs> You asked the question earlier, how do I actually decide what questions are interesting? You can try to break it down into a science. When I wrote at The Atlantic, we used to say a story should either be like definitive or delightful, like you should pick off one kind of delightful element of it. This is, again, very before times uh -huh. when things were still delightful. But you could pick off one small element that you thought would delight people, or you should try to come at a topic with like, you know, knowing everything. And mm -hmm. this is everything you need to know about, like this particular aspect of it. But when I'm now looking for stories, if it's news, I try to find something that makes me kind of go, holy shit. <laughs> like that's, it's like, oh man, that's really important. Like if that's my instinct when I see it, I'll try to write it up and explain to people why this is important and you should know it. Or a variation of that is this is why this is ridiculous. Like if it triggers some sort of strong impulse in me, I usually assume it's going to trigger some sort of strong impulse in my reader. Yeah. I like to think I'm in tune enough with the people who come to Slate.com or who are just on the internet that, you know, they'll share my reaction if I explain it well, and I put the right headline on it. Yes. When it comes to asking the questions, it's having a sense of curiosity mm. and thinking to yourself, well, if I don't know the answer and I'm curious about it, I'm pretty sure someone else has to yeah. be wondering as well. It's just, you know, trusting yourself enough to think that people who read you will care about the same things you do. Right. And of course, I speak as a former editor. Your editor is, has some role in that too, right? Yeah, there are definitely times where, you know, John will pop up and say, hey, you see this? You should probably cover this. Mm -hmm. And I'll go, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. John, in this case, being Jonathan Fisher, Slate's business and tech editor. We started this conversation talking about this particular moment and how this is a time when economics and politics, the two areas that is kind of the nexus of what you usually write about, is particularly hot because... The, because the world's falling apart the world's and Congress is trying to put it together. Exactly, because politics... spit, tape, and glue. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> a lot of spit, especially. This is a place where politics needs to intervene in the economics. So is it typical for economics and business reporters to be quite as obsessed with politics as you are? I think a lot of economics writers... Are, I mean, if you go and you read a typical newspaper, the economics writers are going to be in their own section and the politics beat reporters are going to be in another. They separate them off. But when you get outside strict, you know, newspaper beat reporting, you see a lot more meshing of the two, the sort of people who like to comment on some combination of econ and policy and politics. And frankly, I think that's sort of the way it should be. Like before there was a, a strict economics discipline, right? Like in academia, mm -hmm. they used to call it political economy. Mm. Right. Like there was this idea that these things were enmeshed and for good reason. Right. Like you can't really separate 
you know, institutions and structures from the way the economy works. If you want to talk about things like inequality or what's happening right now, they're not really separable. These things matter. And the best economists understand that too, that institutions matter, right? Like there's a whole field of economics devoted to like development economics, devoted to looking at the effects of institutions. Mm. So I think, you know, some people would like to pretend that you can really easily separate them, but I don't think that's a healthy way to look at the topic. Yeah. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Well, and so this last week, as the CARES Act was being debated, was struggling to get passed, you were really following that story. You were following the development, the evolution of the legislation. How did you do that? I mean, I I, was curious, but I would have no idea of how to even tackle that. I think everyone had their own way of trying to figure out what was going on. It was really hard because they were rushing to put out this bill and they weren't making it public, mm. right? They weren't releasing drafts for everyone to look at. The Republicans did at one point, they, an early version that was quickly rejected by the Democrats. But what I was doing during that was basically messaging back and forth with different political aides who I'm kind of friendly with. Mm. One advantage to being sort of a very out on the internet personality and having a little bit of name recognition mm-hmm. is that people will talk to you. You know, you get to know folks online and eventually they become sources, yeah. you know, even just background sources. And so I had people sending me drafts of the bill as they came in so I could see what was actually in them. Mm-hmm. And there was one judgment call that I actually, I'm going to talk about it. I, I feel like it was a mistake at one point. Um, I got a draft of the bill fairly early on. I think it was over the weekend. And I didn't post it. 
And I actually wish I had mm. just for like kind of transparency so everyone could see it. And I talked about it with another reporter here and I was going to, and the reason we didn't was we thought it was going to be outdated very soon. Mm -hmm. And that as a result, it would just cause a lot of confusion. Like people wouldn't know which version to look at yeah. and they would be coming to the wrong conclusions. And so we thought we were going to actually be obscuring more than we, we would have illuminated by putting it up. In retrospect, I should have just gone with like the kind of shoe leather impulse to like have a scoop and, yeah. and put it out there. But you know, so I, I was reading drafts of the bill and figuring out what was in it and then asking people on the committee, hey, like, how is this evolving? Am I right about reading this? Like, you know, I have to know how to read legislation. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And that's something that I'm very aware of, because it's not only you have to know how to read it, you have to be able to know which bits to read, because those things are massive. And I know that you're a fast reader. I know this from many years ago when a big Supreme Court case, the opinion came down and within a few minutes, you had posted like a very cool line from it that got a lot of traffic. So I know that you're a quick reader, but there's a skill there. It's strategic skimming. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's really, when you spend all day reading extremely boring technical materials, this was a skill I had to learn with reading econ papers yeah. as like a non-expert. I had to be like, okay, I have to skim over all this math because it's basically Greek to me. <laughs> Some of this methodology I can leave aside for now and come back to if I really need to get what they did with the instrumental variable and whatnot. And with legislation, you kind of have to go, it's like, okay, well, here are all the subheads and here's the table of contents and here's the thing I want to look for. And you learn how to use control F yes. really strategically. Yes. You're like, okay, look, let's look for this word. And what are your big words? Restaurants, obviously, but what your other big words. Here's an example of when you're, you're quickly trying to go through some legislation and to answer a slightly tricky question. As you know, a lot of small businesses have laid off workers already, mm. right? A lot of restaurants and, you know, shops. I mean, there have been 3 million layoffs last week alone yeah. in the United States. Yeah. And part of this bill is supposed to essentially give small businesses you know, what are technically loans, but they're really grants to keep the lights on, to keep paying their rent and to keep their workers employed rather than dump them onto the unemployment insurance rolls. And there are incentives there, right? And one of the questions that came up from small business owners and people I know was, well, if I already laid off my workers, mm -hmm. does this apply to me? Like, do I qualify? Yeah. What do I do here? I was going through legislation and it all kind of depended on how they calculated yada, yada, yada thing, the word covered period became very important. <laughs> I realized that as looking at it, it's like, okay, all this comes down to the definition of covered period. And so I was finding myself control effing through the document to go and look for where it is in this damn bill. They give the definition of covered period. Wow. Um, and it was like three lines in the middle of some section. I was like, okay, I finally found it. And it's like, I, I went back and I messaged my friend and said, you're good. <laughs> And all, you're good. And uh, John, here's the answer to this question to this edit you had in my story. Wow, wow. <laughs> like, so that's an example of like, yeah, like when you're reading legislation, sometimes like any legal thing, a lot of it's about making sure you understand what words mean. Yeah. The other thing I guess, too, is knowing where you're writing for, knowing your audience at your publication. Because I know, for example, I was talking with someone actually for a slate piece, a woman who runs local New York type laundry that's effectively a kind of middleman business. At the best of times, it's a low margin business. But right now, with hardly anyone around, really having a hard time keeping the doors open. And she said to me, what does it matter to me about a small business loan? I can't repay a loan. And so something that you just said made me think, well, I should have known that, well, it's actually a grant. But, you know, you're not going to write that in Slate because she's not reading Slate. This is one thing I sometimes find myself 
trying to balance, mm. uh, right? Like, am I writing for the generalist? Am I writing for someone who wants a little bit more detail? Am I writing for someone who really wants me just to wonk the fuck out and get <laughs> like really nerdy about something? Yeah. How technical should I get in this piece? And since we're talking about this small business piece I published, part of what I wanted to convey was that these are described as loans. Everyone is hearing this described as a small business lending program. They're not really loans. Mm-hmm. Most of these loans are going to be forgiven, and I'm trying to convey that as clearly as possible Mm. to people so that they get, oh, okay, here's what this bailout that's supposed to make sure this downturn doesn't just completely scar America's cities and leave them unrecognizable. Here's how this program is supposed to really work. Mm. The second part of the story is why I'm not sure it will work, why I'm actually a little frightened about it. And, you know, one thing about writing that was, I kind of presented it as my concerns, Mm -hmm. which it's like, okay, well, this is just one guy talking. (laughs) But one thing you have to realize about some commentators is we interview people and we talk to people and we don't necessarily quote them the same way they would be quoted in a regular newspaper article, but we're informed by our own reporting, by our own phone conversations. Mm -hmm. It's not just all me sitting alone in my man cave, (laughs) which is how I'm referring to this this very dark room I've settled in and just coming up with ideas about stuff where I'm talking to other people and trying to incorporate their ideas as well as my own. So let's talk about the specific dynamics of reporting now. As we all know, most people who are able to at least and still have work and are not in places that they need to actually attend in person are working from home. For some people, like us actually, work is now busier than ever. For some people who we don't have kids, I mean, for people with kids, their work life has become just hellacious because they also are teaching their kids, they're looking after their kids as well as doing their full-time now busier than ever job it is hellacious but i would like to say that their kids are adorable yes, on zoom yes yes on our zoom meetings their kids are like very much the comic relief yes. and so to the parents of slate thank you yes absolutely <laughs> thank and, you for bringing a little bit of light into yeah also to the pet owners of slate so that's true that too so yeah. how has it been in terms of getting in touch with people hearing back from sources checking in with people are they super responsive because they people are actually really responsive right yeah. now yeah. yeah i mean in my world everyone's just glued to the internet all day yeah <laughs> i mean it's like because yeah. this is when everyone's on it's like if everyone is watching the world burn and so everyone wants to have their say about what should be done and so people are pretty responsive it's a little bit hectic that yes. i would say it's been less it's not that people aren't responsive it's that sometimes you'll message someone on the hill and they'll be like fuck if i know <laughs> <laughs> like that that was one funny thing about when the stimulus bill was getting written is that it wasn't even circulating necessarily among all of the offices on the Hill. Eventually it was getting out to them, but you know, as it was being drafted, it was a pretty tight circle of people who were, you know, in different committees in the white house and and Chuck Schumer's office writing it or negotiating over it. So you would ask a question and be like, is this, is this the current version of the bill? And they're like, maybe Mm -mm -mm. (laughs) someone would ask me a question. Sometimes (laughs) you're like, Hey, do you know this? And like, that's always a funny position to be in. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's here. Or like, (laughs) let me control that for you. There was one point where someone said, Oh, did you hear about this? And I was like, yeah, I'm the person who pointed that out to everybody. (laughs) Like I, I tweeted that. (laughs) <laughs> so like there are points where it's not clear where information's coming mm-hmm. from or who knows anything and one actually failing of mine is i'm not as sourced up as i would like to be in mm-hmm. washington there are people who are much 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 better and more connected than i am i am 
I am only slightly connected. Mm. I am tenuously connected <laughs> to the hill. Mm. I don't want to make myself sound like, oh, yeah, I'm at like the center of everything. Like I'm more sort of, I spent this week a little bit at the periphery just trying to get what I could. <laughs> like, you know, kind of poke at it and doing my best. But it hasn't been so much difficult finding people. Everyone's there. It's just sorting out what's going on is a little tricky. Yeah. And what are the other challenges? I mean, you mentioned working from a man cave. Is there someone else, <laughs> you know, like your wife, for example, also working in that space? My wife is working in the living room. Our living room's really nice. It's like I've got my whole gallery wall in there, lots of paintings and stuff. We have the living room all decked out. It's nice and airy. I mean, it looks like a millennial pen, right? Like, you know how millennials decorate lots sure. of, you know, popping colors and things like that. But we got our bar cart, which we've made a lot of use of <laughs> this, this week. Oh, man, it's bad. So she's off in the living room, and I've kind of quarantined myself within the quarantine. I've double quarantined myself. I tend to go a little bit crazy when I work from home in general. Like, I just get nervy. Oh, my and God. So, I mean, you know me in the office and how sort of on edge I can be. Yes. Now imagine that without like social norms to constrain me. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> it's just... just text me your wife's number later so I can check in on her from time to time. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, like, so there was a point where she looked at me and she said, you know, just because I'm working from home doesn't mean I'm going to, you know, suddenly allow myself to turn to a garbage person, right? <laughs> like, just like, and I looked at her and I said, what, are you accusing me of being a garbage person? And she, she looks at me for a second and says, honey... I told you 24 hours ago that that shirt you're wearing was on Inside Out. It's still on Inside Out. And, like, that's that's where I'm at. That's yeah. my level. As the Quakers say, friend, I have received the weight of thy message. Understood. Okay. That's kind of my condition at the moment. Jordan, any last takeaways about the way your job is going right now, writing about economics and politics and what the hell is going on in our world? So I will say one thing about this past two weeks of watching this kind of tidal wave crash on the economy, I kind of looked back at the stories I've written and realized how when I was writing some of the stories, I was worried about being alarmist, that maybe I was going a little bit over the top. It actually turned out that I wasn't alarmist enough. Wow. Actually, things got so much worse, so much quicker than I expected. Like, I can't even really rightfully call myself a Cassandra because I just thought things were going to be bad. Mm. If you'd asked me two weeks ago, are we going to be looking at three million people laid off in a week? Maybe three weeks ago. But like either way, if you'd asked me that, I, that wasn't on my mind. Yeah. And even then, I was writing like, you should be terrified of what's coming. Mm. That was the message I was trying to get out. And I wasn't even appropriately terrified. All the journalists are watching this unfold. Um, and all the economists and all the people who, all the politicians, are watching something unprecedented unfold right now. Mm. And so we're every so often just having to like kind of reassess the situation. And so everything we know is extremely provisional right yeah. now. Like when you're reading opinions about what's happening, just know like the speed at which these stories are developing is just unlike anything, even in 2008. It's just kind of unreal. The impression I'm getting is that you constantly have to recalibrate so that you're not constantly at 11. There has to be some room for more alarm. So you have it's to kind, so of, kind of keep extending <laughs> the boundaries a bit. Well, you just get a bigger amp. <laughs> Just put more numbers on the end. Yeah, well, I already went to 11. Ah, yeah, I guess I can, let's go to, let's, I can draw 15 on there. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about working because, at least for a while, this is your last working because we are going to retool the show a little bit, revamp or re whatever one of those rewords the show and, and its focus, which we'll get to at the end of the show. We'll talk about how we're revamping. 
But I want to talk about your time as host of Working. How long did you do the show? You did it for at least a couple of years, right? Yeah, I mean, I have. I think I have more than 90-something episodes. Wow. Like, in total, I'm pretty sure. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah. It was funny, because I started the show after I left Slate Money. Mm. I had decided I, I kind of had my run on that program, and as much as I enjoyed it. At the time, Julia Turner was like, oh, we got this other podcast that just opened up, because Jacob Brogan, the former host, had left. And she said, how about you try working? You know, it'll be your first time hosting your own, own program. Right. And I said... Oh, that's nice. Like the metaphor I came up with was this was sort of Slate's goldfish, right? It was like it's smallish, but much loved pet. And it was my job to take care of this goldfish. Right on. And made sure it stayed well fed and stayed alive and that everyone could come by and say hi. And so <laughs> I like to think, though, I eventually managed to kind of put my own stamp on it mm-hmm. over time just uh, through my own personal quirks and obsessions and weirdness. So do you have a favorite? <laughs> I know all of the episodes that you have hosted and all the interviews have done they're all your children and you live them all but is there one that was particularly favorite yeah i have a few i really loved talking to the greeting card writer that was one of my favorites i did that as a valentine's day holiday edition and i went into that one so cynical i was like i actually i feel guilty in retrospect because i was like okay let's this is gonna be fun i'm gonna be talking to this kind of courty guy and let's see if i can keep this funny you were a jerk, basically, is what you're I thought me. I was going to be a jerk, but instead, by the end of the episode, he had so <laughs> broken through my shell, and oh. like, it was so sincere, and it was just not the conversation I expected at all, and it was like, this guy who's like a playwright in Ohio as well, and he's like, he makes his money as a greeting card writer, but he's also a creative, and like, mm-hmm. just talking about his process, and like, the goofiness that goes into it and like laughing about the kind of dad jokes that make it onto these cards and it was total opposite of what i expected it made me a little bit of a believer and he explained he's like you know i'm writing cards for people who aren't necessarily good at articulating their feelings and you and i were both writers who like to gab whereas not everyone is that person and so there was a part of the interview where i kind of realized like this guy he specialized in uh, writing kind of romantic notes right like you know things you would buy on valentine's day And by the end of it, I realized, like, every one of these notes, this is essentially a note he in his head is writing to his wife, or a lot of them are. And that's actually the the sentiment he's trying to universalize a little bit. It's like, that's kind of amazing in a way. You're getting a little piece of this guy's heart on this card. That was one I loved. There was one I interviewed, the guy who runs an aquarium. He runs the New York Aquarium off in Coney Island. That one became, like, an entire discussion about the existential terror (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of, I'm using the word existential, like not in the strict philosophical sense, but just the, the sheer terror of running an aquarium and knowing if something goes wrong, like all the fish could die. Oh my goodness. Like, just like waking up at 3am with anxiety and just like, again, it's just a direction I didn't expect. Yeah. I had an interview with a guy who trims marijuana for a living. Oh uh, yes. In the weed season that you went out to Colorado to report. I interviewed a guy who trims weed for a living. I didn't really know what to expect there because he was like a really mellow dude when I I had kind of pre-interviewed him. And how much is there really to discuss about sitting at a table and trimming marijuana? Like the conversation lasted about half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, and it was just joyful. And it was just like, actually, there's a lot to talk about. (laughs) Like it turns out you can really get into the nitty gritty of like, this part of the industry and technique and what they're doing and all that. It it was just, I loved those times where you'd walk into an interview and just get something totally 
unexpected, not what you'd necessarily signed up for or expected to be talking about. Yeah. Now, can I ask, did doing all these interviews and talking with so many people about how they spend their days and how they get their work done, did it change the way you work at all? No, but that's because like I'm... (laughs) You're a deeply damaged person. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just, I'm a creature of bad habits. Mm. (laughs) It's not... Got it. You're not ready to change them yet is what I'm hearing. In some ways, it actually made me feel a little bit better about that, though, because when David Plotz started this show, right, mm-hmm. he focused a lot on people who had a rhythm to their week. Yeah. And like there was sort of a structure to what they did. And, you know, his first interview was with Stephen Colbert. Yes. He literally just ran through a day in production from waking up to, you know, signing off and, and going back to bed. And... I was listening to those episodes. I was studying up on them to figure out how I was going to host the show. What I quickly realized is most people don't have a rhythm to their day like that. Most people, actually, it's a lot more freeform. When you ask, like, what people do, you're not necessarily going to get a sharp answer. You have to start kind of probing and exploring and thinking about it in different ways. And that made me feel better about my own sort of disorganization (laughs) to some extent. Good. So, June. Mm. What are you doing to the show? <laughs> what, what are you what doing are you to doing my to, dear precious child, the show? How are you going to destroy my child? No, what are you doing to the goldfish? What kind of uh, tropical fish are you turning the show into? <laughs> well, we're going to refocus the show slightly. For as long as the show has been going, although there have been seasons, many of which you did some great ones, including working with Weed, which I just mentioned. But it's been, you know, how different people do their jobs, and that's been it. We're going to take a focus on a specific kind of job and a specific kind of work, and that is people who very consciously work creatively. So I think every single person works creatively. I'm trying to think of a job that I think of as having very little agency. So, for example, a toll taker, somebody who works in a toll booth. There's not a lot of variety you can do, you would think, in a job like that. But I'm sure there actually is. There, are, Everybody brings some creativity to their job. But I don't quite mean that. I mean people who work in creative fields like writing, designing, singing, composing, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So we're going to be talking to creative people about their creative process. I'm keep saying we, and I know that I should say a bit more about that. There will actually be three hosts. We'll still do the interviews one-on-one, but we will have some, as we say in the podcast business, some banter before we run the interviews. And we're going to try and pull out some kind of lessons at the end. Those hosts will be me. It'll be Isaac Butler, who people who've been listening and enjoying Slate Podcasts for a while will recognize as the host of Lend Me Your Ears, a show about Shakespeare that happened on Slate Plus. He's also a regular guest on Mom and Dad are Fighting and the Culture Gab Fest. He's a wonderful, charming, and intelligent fellow. Indeed he is. Indeed he is. All those things. All of those things. A fabulous, a fabulous host. Indeed. And he also is a theater director and a writer. Um, And then Roman Alam, who is also one of the co-hosts of the Outward podcast, uh, is one of the writers of Care and Feeding Slate's parenting advice column. And he also is a novelist. And so the three of us will be interviewing people. We've got some great guests already lined up, some interviews done. Um, Veronica Roth, the novelist, Adam Ragusia, who used to be a journalist and a podcaster and is now a YouTube food channel guy. Jamie Barton, the opera singer, Megan Abbott, the writer, Myra Kalman, the writer and illustrator, Miho Hazami, just lots of really great guests lined up. And so we'll be talking about creativity. And if listeners have questions about the creative process, like 
any creative challenges that they would like us to investigate with these creative people, please send emails to working at slate.com and we'll do our best to find answers for you. That sounds like a lot of fun. This is making me think of one more favorite, mm. a recent favorite, mm. which was the woman who does world building for Magic the Gathering oh, and yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. I'm looking forward to more creativity. Great. <laughs> show it's, it's just going to be so just jam-packed with creativity. creativity. It's just, 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 just oozing creativity. Oozing, oozing, yeah. Okay, Jordan, thank you so much for being an amazing host of Working. I'm sure we'll hear from you either on Working or in another Slate podcast before too very much longer. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me take care of the goldfish. Yeah, well, and, and thank you for explaining what the hell is going on in the world right now. Uh, we'll keep reading you. And as always, keep washing your hands. <laughs> Will do. Bye, June. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or send us an email at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Rosemary Belson. Special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music and June Thomas for sitting down and interrogating me for this episode. I'm Jordan Weissman signing off for the last time. Catch the show next week. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.